Hello and welcome to Sabbath School Quarterly Commentary. This is your pure gold commentary podcast. And as the name suggests, this is a commentary. It's not a study guide. So grab your study guide if you're not driving or running while listening to us. My name is Morgan Vincent, and this is the final episode. We have Natasha Sewer and to discuss our theme of Christ in the Crucible. And this, in essence, is what the focus has been for the last 12 weeks now is in the crucible with Christ. And now we're going to be focusing in so many ways from his early life all the way through to, I guess, the end of his earthly life on Christ and how he was in a crucible of suffering as well. Let's go to the discussion, Tash. We are going to be looking at people in the Bible who radiated faith. We've been looking at these people We've seen people like Abraham, we've seen people like Job, we've seen people like Hosea, we've seen people like Paul, we've seen so many people, but today we're going to be especially looking at Jesus. We're going to be reviewing his trials and his suffering, and we will see that what he actually experienced demonstrates the most amazing love for us today. So when it comes to trials and to the sufferings of Jesus, many Christians focus on his death by crucifixion, and they would be right in doing so. But what about during his three and a half years of public ministry. What even about prior to that? And there's not too much of an indication, but there is some of an indication of the life he had growing up, the experiences that he had growing up. So let's go way back to the start, Tash, of his earthly life. Share a little bit about his earthly upbringing, his childhood upbringing for us, Tash. So Luke 1 tells us that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit to Mary, who was a virgin. And Mary was engaged to Joseph, and it appears that they were of a humble and poor background, and they were both devout and faithful, but working-class Jews. And so the Bible does not give us much detail about Joseph, but implies that Joseph was much older than Mary and was a widower with young children. So really, in every sense of the word, he didn't have a privileged or privatized or even affluent upbringing. It was very humble beginnings. Super humble, just peasantry almost. And when we look at this, Joseph and Mary, they were from Nazareth. And Nazareth didn't have the greatest of reputations at the time of first century Judea. It just didn't at all. Again, Tash, when we think about this, here was Nathaniel. And I want to look at Nathaniel now. He was a righteous Jew who was considered in this Galilean town of Nazareth of such dubious reputation. And you could almost think, well, what good can come out? What good can come out of Nazareth? Yet there's the response, come and see. Yet there's this response, well, let's not write this off completely. So no doubt, Tash, there would have been conflict, there would have been pressure within Jesus's own family. They weren't affluent, they weren't well off, they weren't well to do by an earthly sense of things. But yet, tell us briefly, Tash, about the conflict and the pressure that Jesus experienced within his own family growing up. So yes, he definitely experienced some things because Jesus had four brothers and at least two sisters. And Jesus was sinless, but his siblings were sinful like all humans. If Jesus was the youngest, he would have been under pressure to conform to the behaviors of his older brothers. And it wouldn't have been easy being the younger sibling. Jesus did not conform to any of their sinful behavior. And he would have had to face rejection. We know that children and teenagers exposed to constant rejection, they suffer low self-esteem and Low self-esteem can lead to loneliness, things like depression and behavioral problems. So while he would have had experienced loneliness and rejection, his close intimate relationships 
were with his father in heaven, and that would have kept him from any sinful behavior. And this is exactly what we see in the life of Jesus, that it's worthy of us to note that, yeah, he certainly suffered, and we're going to get there with the latter part of his life. But from the outset, we can see that he did have an upbringing where there was pressure, there was conflict, where there was tension and, and suffering. But Jesus grew. He grew from an infant into adulthood. And he had to learn like we do. And there's this really, really interesting moment. And Tash, when you stop and think about it, if I was to ask you a question or you were to ask me a question or we would ask anyone a question, we, we generally ask questions to ascertain information, to gather information about something that we don't already know. Jesus is pictured at 12 years of age in the temple. And he's essentially in this Bible study, if you will, this theological discussion, this Bible study. And there are prominent theologians and past, like, let's kind of modernize it, right? Yeah. There were these priests there, but there were these theologians and there were these pastors and... Apologists. And right? And Jesus is there because Jesus had come to Jerusalem with his family. It was the feast time and they came as it was their custom. And in the large caravan of people, as they're leaving to go back to, to, to where they were living prior... Jesus stays back and he's here pictured in this temple and his family's gone on and it's been a couple of days since since they realized he was gone. And then as they make their way back to the temple, they see Jesus with pastors, with theologians, apologists, etc., etc. And they see Jesus asking questions and they see Jesus giving responses. Jesus is the son of God and Jesus is asking questions. And Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, it, it speaks of how Jesus increased he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with god and men in, in other words these four areas of life he grew in wisdom in other words he learned things and you're like why is the son of god having to learn things just think about that the very one who is the creator of the universe is now learning things and he's asking questions he's giving responses and at 12 years of age you think wow this guy's kind of holding his own such was the intimate relationship that he had with his father through the teaching and the upbringing that he had from his mother. This is what I believe sustained Jesus through that, that, that time of childhood okay, and into the threshold of adulthood. That's what sustained him was his close connection with his heavenly father. And so as a Jew, there would no doubt have been from the religious side of things as well, the religious establishment. You've got to conform to these ways. You've got to do these certain things. You've got to act in such a way if you are to be a good Jew. But yet Jesus very finely walks this narrow tightrope of not giving into, I don't want to say not giving in, but kind of without unnecessarily putting off the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Zealots or the Essenes. Somehow Jesus has to walk this tightrope and show himself to be the Messiah, but yet not unnecessarily cut off opportunities for him to minister to them, if that makes sense. So Jesus has these religious pressures put on him. His occupation, Jesus worked as a carpenter. How would that as an occupation have fared for him? Firstly, Jesus followed the trade of his stepfather. So he, his stepfather was a carpenter, so he was a carpenter. And carpentry is a physical job, and Jesus would have been exposed to both hard physical work and the worldly dealing with people in business. And so again, 
He was not sheltered or privileged from the everyday world. Yeah, it's true. He wasn't sheltered. And I love so well, Jesus lived this life between the mountain and the multitude. He was one who was always about being with and around people, healing and preaching and teaching. And yet even prior to his public ministry, we have every reason to believe that he was a just a good, upright, spiritual citizen of society, like doing good for people. And so with that in mind, Jesus was sustained through through moments and times reading the scriptures and spending time in nature and communing with God in prayer. And it's such an important lesson for us today that we can learn from the life of Jesus. If Jesus is our example in all things, then he has to be our example in all things. And these are incredible lessons that we can learn. And so there was also too just we're building, building the case here that Christ himself was in a crucible of suffering, perhaps for the majority, if not all of his life. So there's this scandal, right? There's the scandal of his family background where, you know, these well-known Jewish leaders of Nazareth, they knew that Mary was pregnant and she was engaged, but it was during his ministry that they accused him of being illegitimate. Now, now this scandal would no doubt have caused him to perhaps feel embarrassed, to feel out of an outcast, and but yet through that, he's able to not let it sidetrack him. He's not, he's not letting it get the better of him, but in actual fact, he continues. And I come back to Luke chapter 2 and verse 52. Like he continues to increase in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. This wasn't just true for his childhood, but I believe it to be true for his entire life. So I guess, Tash, to put the question out there, how do we reconcile this summary of his life thus far with the trials and the obstacles that he encountered? So despite being exposed to rejection, misunderstanding, and then living in a town known for its wickedness, the perfect character development of Jesus from infancy to manhood without sin is perhaps the most amazing fact of his entire life. Matthew tells us he spent his time in the scriptures and in prayer, he knew his father. And then again in Matthew 5, it says to grow in favor with man. His one purpose would be to have willing hands to serve and to bless others. He would have been the embodiment of blessing to others. Like while we are sinful humans, we can cope with trials and suffering by spending time in the scriptures and in prayer. When we do this, our minds move off our predicament to want to serve others in whatever capacity we physically can. It's true because when Jesus is there at the age of 30, he embarks on his public ministry. And initially, people love the miracles. Imagine this. The general expectation is that Israel was waiting for a conquering king, warrior, political general that would just overthrow the Romans. Then this man comes onto the scene and where someone has died, they're being raised to life. Where people are starving, there's an excess of food. You're thinking, hmm, we need troops and we need supplies. This person we believe can fit the bill to be our king to be. And so obviously like they're loving these miracles. They're excited because they're like thinking this is finally the Messiah. The Messiah has finally come. But that waned because for many of them who wanted to pronounce him an earthly king, Jesus recoils from that. He kind of pulls back from that because that wasn't the intent of why he came. And we come to Isaiah chapter 53 and there's this wonderful expose, if you will, of how Jesus is described and the kind of life that he would live. And the little title in my Bible here, it says the suffering servant. 
And I want to read Isaiah 55 and from verse 3. It, it speaks of Jesus. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So here Isaiah prophesies of a suffering Messiah, and we see this perfectly fulfilled in the life of Jesus, particularly in his public ministry. The religious leaders and even the common people, they didn't understand the life of Jesus, his teachings, his healings, his acts of service, his acts of compassion. And this actually led to them rejecting and hating him. The very people Jesus came to save hated him. At the beginning of John chapter 1 there, it speaks of how Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. It's like a parent who does so much for a wayward child time and time again, but yet that child spurns the parent. And instead of just that child going their own way, they heap scorn and rejection upon that person, the only person who actually can spare that child from utter ruin. And it would have been incredibly painful for Jesus. We can sometimes just gloss over this fact, but when we stop and think about it, Tash, what is taking place in the mind of Jesus? Let's kind of zoom in now. We're going to zoom right in to the closing scenes of the life of Jesus. What's taking place in his mind? So Mark 14, 34 tells us this. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. This is the prayer that he's having in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is the night before the crucifixion. And Jesus knows the pain and suffering that is to come in the next few hours. But whatever Jesus suffered throughout his 33 years here on earth, nothing compared to what he was about to face in the last hours before the cross. So the sacrifice of Jesus as the offering for the world's sin was planned, and now it was all coming to pass. So Jesus, who was untainted with sin, was now feeling the weight of mankind's sin fall on him. So there must have been separation from the Father. That sin brings was a new but terrible experience. So Jesus and his humanity shrank back, and he asked for his companionship and prayer support from his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. But if you know the story, they fell asleep. And alone, he had to face this great struggle, this will that he was now having to give his life, or will he not? For our listeners, I really encourage you to read the account of Jesus in Gethsemane there, either Matthew 26 or Luke 22, I believe it is, and there in Mark 14, or the prayer of Jesus in John 17, because it shows us what he's going through. And he's now coming to the place of where he's going through this alone. The very people he thought would be there for him have fallen asleep you know, what this would have been like. And there was also another source of suffering that Jesus had because prior to this, just moments before, Jesus laments over Jerusalem, this city he loves, this city he came to to show the glory of God to and a people he came to save. Jesus here, he cries out and you can almost hear it in his voice. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones the those who were sent to her. How often I wanted, and it's like, how often is how often? For centuries, I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And so sad is the next phrase, but you were not willing. The very people Jesus came to save were not willing. They weren't willing. Jesus is there. He's going through the trial in Gethsemane. And if it weren't for the angel coming, this is incredible in Luke's account. If it weren't for the angel coming to strengthen him, Jesus would have died there in Gethsemane. The angel did come, and the angel did strengthen Jesus. 
And the interesting thing is here that we read this account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And for those who may or may not know, the word Gethsemane quite literally means like pressing, this olive press. Jesus quite literally personifies that. As you read, Tash, his soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Like his life is quite literally getting squeezed and crushed out of him because he is realizing more and more that he is now becoming sin for us. That's what Paul would say. He became sin for us. So now we read this. And even though Jesus is there in Gethsemane, he prays three times. And again, as we reflect upon Jesus as our example here, Jesus prays three times, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And it's there where it says it in Matthew's account, and he rises. He rises from that place and he rises from those moments of prayer and he sees coming toward him a group of people. It's almost like he can't take a break. It's like he's taken this time away. He's been strengthened by an angel. He's submitted to the Father's will. Even though he wants this cup to pass away from him, he rises from that moment and there he sees his betrayers. The story goes on and the account goes on that he would suffer some incredible physical suffering that was leading up to this. Just to, to list a few of these things off, you know, he's arrested in the middle of the night, he's beaten, he's spat on, he's interrogated by religious leaders, and then he's hauled before Pilate. And even though Pilate knew that he was innocent, Pilate had him scourged twice. First time was in Luke 23 to appease the mob so Pilate could hopefully release Jesus. And then the second time was in Matthew 27 where he was punished preliminarily to crucifixion. So Jesus endured two rounds of 39 lashes because they believed that upon the 40th lash, it would just, it would just tip over that edge. So Jesus endured, well, what's that? 78 lashes within hours of each event. His skin would have been almost laid open with multiple wounds. And by this stage, he would have been in a terrible physical condition. But yet, Tash, and for our listeners, this physical suffering was not even, we can't even compare it to, to like the mental and the soul anguish that he's going through. It's such an incredible thing, but we're not going to end on, 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 on necessarily the doom and gloom of, of Christ in the crucible. We're going to come out of this. But before we do, tell us about his death on the cross. So the Romans used crucifixion because it was slow, it was agonizing, it was a way, terrible way to die. But it was one of the harshest punishments that they could give. It could take many days to die, and it was considered the worst way to die. And Jesus came in human flesh like ours. He experienced the pain like any human would. And his body was already a mess, severely wounded from the, the scourging, and now nails in his hands and feet, and the harrowing weight of his own body tearing at the wounds. Plus, the shame of hanging on the cross, naked, with the religious leaders taunting and ridiculing him. This was cruel, even for the worst of criminals. Yet Jesus allowed this when he was innocent of everything. Further, he did not sin by even a thought against those who were brutalizing him. He endured this for us, that we may have eternal life. And it is love so deep we cannot even comprehend it. With that, I want to frame all of this suffering, all of this persecution that, that Jesus went through. In 2 Timothy 3.12, the Bible says, Yes, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And for us, for our listeners as well, knowing that Jesus went through what he went through makes it easier for us to endure suffering. It would say in Hebrews 12, no, 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 you haven't yet resisted to bloodshed. 
Like you, you haven't gone to the extent that Jesus has gone through. Because two verses earlier, it speaks of Jesus in Hebrews 12 too, that he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus went through all of this, and yet we haven't gone to those lengths yet. We don't need to go to those lengths yet. Jesus experienced and he suffered what he suffered so that we need not suffer that. But what an incredible promise to know that as we're wrapping up here, all those that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So Tash, for us, for our listeners, whatever sufferings that we have, we can thank God for his amazing love to us that we have this promise of eternal life. And we know that we're looking forward to, to, to a better place, a better heaven, a better earth, or as John would say, a new heaven and a new earth, one where there is no suffering, sin, and death. And this is the promise to us that it's made certain for us because of the love of Christ. And so Tash, thank you for joining us on our discussion today. We've gone heavy. We've been able to unpack and delve deep into what it was like for Christ to be in the crucible. And for us, the invitation is really there for all of us. And that is to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. We're now going to hear from Pastor Gavin Anthony. He joined us for a couple of episodes, and he's the author of this series of study guides that we've gone through. He's going to share an encouraging overview and charge for us so that we can really just bring everything to a close and bring everything to an end of God's intent and purpose of being in the crucible of suffering with us. Gavin, I just wonder if in some closing moments, if you can wrap up, give an overview or summation of this quarter of the journey we've gone on thus far. All right, let me summarize how I see the big picture of these lessons. So we started off with Psalm 23, looking at this reality that my individual journey is going to go through some difficult places, the value of the shadow of death, table surrounded by enemies, but it's to get us to the house of the Lord. And as we stay on the right paths with the right person that takes us to the right place, most importantly, we become the right people. We become righteous like the shepherd. And I think that's a really important theme to carry with us as we finish. We are becoming more and more like Jesus. And that's what the shepherd in Psalm 23 is aiming for, or rather, in Psalm, 27, in Psalm 27, verse 4, the aim of the shepherd getting to the house of the Lord, or rather the sheep, keep saying the shepherd, the sheep is getting there to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And as Paul says, as we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we become like him. We looked at then four reasons for suffering, Satan is at work in the world. I reap the consequences of my sin. God works to refine me. And then he works to prune me. And then in the weeks after that, we looked at many different examples of God taking his, his dearly beloved, precious people into really difficult circumstances. Abraham, Job, Joseph, Paul. I mean, there's all sorts of Bible characters that we find where God is taking them to mature and test them for a variety of reasons, but it comes down to learning deeper trust and getting greater intimacy with God that we can become, they can become, and therefore we can become more like him. The second part of this quarter, we were looking at the qualities that God is most interested in maturing in our lives through these processes, things like faith and hope and patience and meekness and submission. And 
because sin is so deeply rooted in my own heart, and here I'm speaking from personal experience, sometimes these things need to be pretty painful, not because God has caused me pain, but because I don't want to yield to God. It's the pain of my sinful nature, being frustrated and trying to prevent the work of God from doing what is needed to ensure that I become increasingly like him. So as we go through these difficulties, what is going to keep us going and not give up? Well, as we said back in Psalm 23 and Psalm 27, the motivation I think primarily is we want to see Jesus. He is beautiful. He is attractive. I want to spend time in his presence. And then think about what God is doing in the big picture of the great controversy. You are designed and created in the image of God to reveal the beauty and the glory of the character of God, the honor of God. And as we submit and allow ourselves to live under God's sovereignty and yield to God's sovereignty, then God is able to have access to us and this great purpose for our lives be accomplished. And again, think about this as a reason for getting up in the morning. Why? What is my life about? What am I here on this earth to do? I was designed and created in the image of God to reveal the beauty of the glory of the character of God for the honor of God. And I can't think of a reason for human existence that is greater than that purpose. The challenge is, though, that in these circumstances, as the darkness comes around, I may be tempted, both from inside and outside, that God is gone and he doesn't care about me. And he's not providing me what I need. And I suppose one of the Bible texts that has been such an encouragement, and there's been quite a lot, but maybe we can land, or maybe two texts to end. The first is, is Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 3. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, who formed you, Israel, do not fear. I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. So verse 1. God is saying, you are mine. And this is the context of exile and judgment and their discipline by God. But even so, you are mine. Verse two, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze for I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your savior. And notice the key thing is here. He says, when you pass through the waters and the rivers and the fire, you won't die. He says, I will be with you. And I think it's really fascinating. God does not send his people on a detour around the waters, around the rivers, around the fire. But he says, when you go through them and you are in the middle of it, I will be with you and I love you. And if we zip down there, let's zip down to verse seven, when he's talking about bringing his beloved people back from exile, verse seven, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So the purpose of his people, the, why he created these, his people in the first place is to give glory and honor. And we stand as image bearers in the world giving honor to God. That's what God is after. And so when I'm in the middle of the fire and I'm in the middle of the water, I need to remember, no, God has not abandoned me. He's with me. He loves me. He's given me this astonishing purpose. And so 
I'm going to hang on here. I'm going to trust his purpose. I'm going to submit to his sovereignty and God's will will be done. And I will live this purpose of revealing the glory of God for the honor of God. That's a, an Old Testament text. If I go to one of my favorites to finish in the New Testament, I think that must be 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And here we have, again, a very specific purpose. Starting at, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting verse 3. Praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort. Now notice this who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So if we link it back to what we just read in Isaiah, I'm in the middle of the fire, I'm in the middle of the water, and I get comfort there. I find God's presence in the valley of the shadow of death. I receive comfort. I now meet you, Morgan, and I see you're going through some difficulties, and I can now comfort you with the comfort I got when I was in the fire. So this is a ministry purpose. This is a missional purpose. And just to show how extreme God may, extreme situations God may lead us to, uh, Paul continues, we jump down to verse eight. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We felt under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of a life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on, us, rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God took Paul on a journey where he thought he was going to die. And Paul looks back and he says, this happened so that I might learn to rely on the God who raises the dead. And I've learned this lesson. And so when I see you being overwhelmed by your circumstances, I can tell you from firsthand experience, I know a God who rescued me from the worst situ situation possible. And I want to pass on the encouragement that I have found and give it to you. And then when you meet someone who is overwhelmed and wants to give up, you can bring encouragement that had its source originally in God. And because it has a divine origin, there will be supernatural transformation at the end of it. Gavin, thank you. Thank you for giving us that overview and as well for being with us on the journey this quarter. We've appreciated, I certainly have, the insights you've brought and the experiences you've shared and how through all of this spirit, I believe has helped reframe how we can deal and approach pain and suffering and the difficulties that we go through in life. Gavin, thank you for being with us. You're most welcome. It really has genuinely been a great privilege, in Paul's words, to share the comfort I have received and to pass that on to you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you like the conversation, tell your friends. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you are listening right now. Sabbath School Quarterly Commentary is a production of the Sabbath School Department of the North New South Wales Conference. This week's episode was produced by Henrique Felix and Morgan Vincent. That's it. We'll see you next week.